right, guys, welcome back to Revive School. Man, it's refreshing. Kevin, this is like the middle of the week. We've already had Pastor uh, Tom, Pastor Gordy. They brought the fire. We finished out 2 Timothy. And now we are in a new epistle, a new letter, Titus. Man, I mean, look at all of these paintings. All of these are written by the Apostle Paul. I mean, it just shows how much ministry he does. Some are written to individual uh, individuals and some are written corporately to a church, but ultimately it's all intended for us as well. Now here we are into the book of Titus. Mindy's painting. Look, my wife and I always have these conversations. Where would you, where would you like to live? Would you like to live by mountains or would you like to live by water? Mindy, thank you. Water, it's so, there's just something. I love the sound of running water. I love the, being around water. I love sitting next to water. My wife likes mountains. Hence why we love the fact that we live on a road that says Waterview and also Blue Ridge. Mountains and water, but it's also in Concreteville. So I'll have to do with Mindy's painting. I love it. Titus is, uh, why? Why is Titus have water? Because it is written to people, specifically, obviously it's written to Titus, but if we want to go to a map here for me, if we can, Tom, uh, it, there, Crete, it's written to Titus, who is on, uh, look, it's just surrounded by water. Crete is an island. Now, this is kind of fun. We've talked so many times about Paul's first journey, Paul's second missionary journey, Paul's third missionary journey. We'll get into the historical backdrop of of Titus and all about Crete, but it's really if you want to consider a fourth missionary journey, that's what this would be considered. It's kind of why you want to go to the other one. There's another one, too. It's kind of random, but it, it says Acts 29, which there is, Kevin, there's, there's no Acts 29. We know this. This isn't a typo, but it was after the writings of Acts 28. Paul then continued on his journeys, and what do you know? He's referencing Crete in this journey where his friend, his fellow co-laborer, his son in the Lord, Titus, is actually residing. So what a unique, uh, it really is a unique story. Uh, and I love Mindy's paintings. Just, I'm, I'm telling you guys, it's, it just, it looks refreshing, doesn't it? It looks soothing. And then here you have the word next to the rock, and then you have the butterfly, you have uh, the Israeli flowers. We'll get into that maybe later on uh, tomorrow or possibly the next day. But Titus is obviously, we're going to walk through some backdrop here. The recipient is is Titus. He's mentioned 13 times in the New Testament. And so it's not like he's a, a foreigner to uh, any of this text. He is around because he is a co-laborer. He does the work of the Lord. Obviously, the author is Paul. We've been already addressed this. And Titus was written roughly, look, man, it just depends who you look up, right? Really what it comes down to, roughly between eighty sixty two through 64. Now, look, it was written about eighty sixty two sixty four. while Paul ministered to the Macedonian churches, Hear this, between his first and his second Roman imprisonment. Okay, Paul is not in prison right now. Okay, so we just finished up one language. Uh, kind of basically you have this mentality of, you know, between First Timothy and Second Timothy, right? That's kind of how you have to look at this. You have one imprisonment and then there's a time period he's not in prison. And then we know Second Timothy, as we just alluded to, like this was his last deal. Like this is his last letter that he's writing to Timothy. There's a letter that's written in between these. And so what, what you can reference is, is that he was written either from Corinth or Nicopolis. Okay. If you go to Titus, Kevin, if you don't mind, Titus 3.12. Again, pardon my, uh, my voice here again. Uh, it feels better than last week. Uh, just it's still here. 
He says, when I send Artemis to you or Tychicus, make every effort to come to me in Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. It could be, this is, could be where he's writing from. Another thought would be maybe in from Corinth. Now, if you go to uh, Titus 3.13, just next. Okay, one more verse for me. This is kind of cool. In fact, I, I texted a, a lawyer friend of mine here in the Dallas area because this is who's delivering the letters. Zenus the lawyer and Apollos on their journey. So here they are, the, the letter carriers, probably delivered by these two guys, okay? And they're delivering the letter, Kevin, to Titus, right? Possibly from Nicopolis, possibly from Corinth. Can't say 100%, but they are delivering the letter. So now when you say delivering the letter, these lawyer and Apollos, they're, when they're delivering it, this isn't on land, okay? So it's obvious, obvious statement, but obviously these guys have to learn how to sail. They have to learn to get on a boat and they're coming to a region, an island called Crete. Here's, let me, let me go back to Titus 1.5 if we can. Let's kind of keep going here in the backdrop. Like apparently there was a season that Paul was there with Titus. We don't know when that was. That's what's interesting about this. So the reason I left you in Crete, which means he was there. Paul was there. And so we don't have a time frame, but obviously he left him to strengthen the work. Now, a couple other things that John MacArthur kind of helped spell out for me. Uh, after Artemis and Tychicus arrived to direct the ministry there, that was when Paul wanted Titus to join him in the city of Nicopolis. Okay. So after they're there, hey, it's okay to come with us, come to the, uh, the province of Achaia in Greece, and then stay there through the winter. So he still wanted to connect with them. Okay. He still wanted to connect with them in this process. Now, because of his involvement with the church at Corinth, during Paul's third missionary journey, Titus is mentioned nine times. Okay, so hang in here with me, okay? So because of his involvement with the church in Corinth, it's mentioned nine times. And now this is where Paul refers to Titus, to him, as a brother. He refers to Titus as his fellow partner and his fellow worker. So while doing work, okay, in Corinth, Titus and him really established connection. Okay, just a kind of a cool picture, kind of a cool insight. Titus was really viewed as a young elder. The young elder, he's familiar with false teachers. Uh, he's familiar with interacting how the message is for the Jew and the Gentile. And here's what I really like about Titus. I, I think Titus is one of those guys that's just completely overlooked. I overlook him all the time. It's not like he's like on the list of like the guys. But when you think about this, Titus accompanied Paul and Barnabas, you guys, at the Council of Jerusalem in Acts 15. So like if you're talking about Peter, James and John being the bigwigs there and then all of a sudden you have Paul and Barnabas, it's almost like nobody else ever says Titus. <laughs> but like that's kind of a big deal if you're going to defend the faith about how we've been sharing the gospel in these cities. So think about this. Titus is that kind of guy. He's walked with Paul in this journey. So what does it look like for, for Paul to leave Titus into an island Crete? Like what's Crete about? So here's a couple of descriptions of Crete that I just... I think is really interesting. Crete was one of the largest islands in the Mediterranean Sea, measuring 160 miles long, 35 miles wide. Obviously, it's lying south of the Aegean Sea. And then it had been briefly visited by Paul and on his voyage to Rome. So how do we know Paul touched Crete at least one time? We don't know when he did this with Titus. But Kevin, if you go to Acts 27, verses 7 through 16, it's kind of a... Uh, it's kind of a little bit of a journey because here he is on a boat. And remember this, this, this moment where it says sailing slowly for many days, we came with difficulty as far as Sidness. <laughs> Sounds like a disease. Since the, 
since the wind did not allow us to approach it. We sailed along the south side of Crete off Salmon. And then it, scripture continues on, actually. What, with yet more difficulty, we sailed down along the coast, came to a place called Fair Havens near the city of Lassie. And it says, by now much time had passed and the voyage is already dangerous. Since the fast was already over, Paul gave his advice. And he says, hey, man, I can, I can see that this voyage is headed toward the damage and heavy loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. So what does he say? Hey, there's some issues. And the centurion paid attention to the captain and the owner of the ship rather than to what Paul said. And then it says in verse 12, since the harbor was unsuitable, winter and the majority decided to set sail from there, hoping somehow to reach Phoenix, a harbor on Crete open to the southwest and northwest in the winter there. So, Kevin, real quick, Paul said what? Uh, we better stay put or else we're going to shipwreck. Shipwreck. And what did they do? They ignored him, right? Yeah. And it says this. When a gentle south wind sprang up, they thought they had achieved their purpose. They weighed anchor, sailed along the shore of Crete. So Paul is a prisoner, right? Everybody would agree he's a prisoner on the boat. He gives them a word. They say, no, 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 forget that. Keep going, Kevin, in verse 14. But not long afterwards, a fierce wind called the northeaster rushed down from the island. The island, you guys, that we're talking about is Crete. Okay, since the ship was caught when it's unable to head into the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. And then in verse 16, after running under the shelter of a little island called Kata, we were barely able to get control of the skiff. And then really, it actually, it goes all the way into 21. After hoisting it up, they used ropes, tackle, girded the ship. Then fearing they would run aground on the citrus, uh, they lowered the drift anchor. And in this way, they were driven along. All along, you guys, we're, we're talking about all of these different islands. They're all right around here, this whole process. After hoisting it up, they used their ropes, tackle, girded the ship. Then fearing they would run aground on the Sirtis, they lowered okay, the drift anchor, and in this way they were driven along. Because we were being severely battered by the storm, they began to jettison the cargo the next day. On the third day, they threw the ship's gear overboard with their own hands. So here they are all around Crete, and then they're throwing everything over. Many days, neither sun nor stars appeared. The severe storm kept raging. Finally, all hope that we would be saved was disappearing. And then finally, in verse 21, it says, Since many were going without food, Paul stood up among them. And this is what Paul said amongst all these people as a prisoner. He says, You men... I, I, I think he probably said some other things. Should have followed my advice, you idiots! We wouldn't be in this situation not to sail from Crete and sustain this damage and loss. So like in my mind, if I'm Paul, okay, hang on here for a second. I think of disobedience around Crete, not because of the Cretans, but honestly, the Cretans, but because of the people around there. So Paul is shipwrecked, okay, outside of Crete. Like this is possibly Paul's first introduction, okay, possibly uh, to Crete. Kind of an interesting way to get uh, introduced to a community. And so most likely, you guys... He wrote to Titus in response to a letter from Titus or a report from Crete. Somewhere he was hearing about what was going on in this incredible, beautiful island of Crete. So he's writing a letter back saying, hey, guys, OK, I think there's some things going on. Now, you got to understand, he's not writing. MacArthur says this really well. He's not writing to Titus to defend or explain the doctrine. He trusts Titus. Titus goes to Jerusalem Council, you guys, to fight on behalf of, you know, uh, Paul and Barnabas. Like, the guy knows what he's talking about. He, he's not the, maybe the, the younger Timothy who gets the sickness and a little bit nauseous when he has to deal with things. Like, Titus can hold his own. In fact, he has full confidence in Titus. But what he does is he gives Titus a warning, Kevin, about the false teachers again. 
These false teachers are just creeping in everywhere. Can I just tell you, they're in America. They just creep in. And sometimes they like to sit in there and they stir pot, uh, stir pot. Well, they do stir the pot. They stir problems and like they're everywhere. And I'm telling you guys, within the church, you have to call these people out. And that's what Paul says. Look, if I want this ministry to continue so it's not done in vain, please understand. Be aware of the false teachers. It's kind of crazy, though. Uh, even even the reality is that many of the believers, possibly you guys, many of the believers there were probably even new believers. Like there's not a whole lot of time frame from when you first visit right in between your imprisonments and then you're writing back into speaking into him. I will tell you this. John MacArthur says something that really um, it, it really blessed me. Uh, and maybe we'll get into this tomorrow a little bit in Titus 2. I don't know how much, but. There's a major part about what Paul is saying in Titus 2. He really is equipping the church of Crete for effective evangelism. Like effective evangelism is going to take off. And he speaks life into this. And regardless of of all of the godly leaders and then the people who would like to shepherd believers, right? Don't we have that in church, Tom? We love to shepherd people. It's an unbelievable trait. But he also says, look, don't just have this shepherding mentality. You have to have an equipping mentality so that they could engage their pagan neighbors. Like, that's the truth that the church always needs to hear, you guys. The church needs to hear, good, praise the Lord, we're shepherding you, we're taking care of you. But man, we're equipping you to get out. It really is a both and, despite, as even one of their own describes the Cretans. Kevin, this is crazy. If you go to Titus, look in verse 12. One of their own prophets described the people of Crete. Look, this is crazy. They're always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. (laughs) And then be careful they're not creeping in. So I'm telling you guys, you have to learn how to engage these type of people. Just because they're liars, just because, Kevin, go back to verse 12. What does it say? They're, They're evil beasts? That's pretty hard, but that's their own people describing themselves. I think it's absolutely mind blowing. So here's the fun question, I think, for me. Um, like where, when did, when did the Cretans come to know the Lord? Like, you can play the game, ah, it's in between imprisonments. I want to do something. Can you go to Acts 2, verse 11? I think this is our only reference that we have. And man, I'm telling you, it just gets me excited. I want to say lit up, the fire above my head. I'm telling you guys, uh, back up just a little bit, Kevin, for me. You guys, do you understand when the Spirit of God fell at Pentecost? It says, how is it? Keep going back just a little bit. The Spirit of God falls. They're astounded that these people were hit by the Holy Spirit, right? They're encountering the living Christ, the Holy Spirit, and says, and then these people start speaking different languages. It says, look, aren't all those who are speaking Galileans? Like, how are they speaking other languages? How is it that each one of us can hear our own native language in these people that got encountered by the baptism of the Holy Spirit? And then they start listing uh, these people, Parthians, Medes, Elamites, uh, those who live in Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, verse 10, Phrygia, Phamphia, Sorry, I sound like I said diaper or something. Phrygia, Phamphia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya near Cyrene. Visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes. Verse 11, Cretans and Arabs. We saw people from Crete, you guys, get hit with the Holy Spirit. We hear them speaking the magnificent acts of God in our languages. So possibly at Pentecost, you ready for this? Possibly those people in Crete, we, we don't know the names. Possibly got an encounter with the living Christ, come to know the Lord, Right? Through, through the message of Peter, and then they go to back to their island. 
Maybe, look, I'm just going to throw out something. This is, I have no proof of this. Maybe they go back and in the shipwreck, maybe, just maybe, somehow Paul blesses them in a, in a second. Who knows what God can do through one encounter. One little car accident could lead to somebody coming to know Christ. One encounter of a, of, of, a, of a bad situation. You could bless somebody. All I'm saying is that God can use any situation to further enhance the gospel. And maybe these people that encountered Christ through Pentecost, maybe all they needed to do was see Paul. And the next thing you know, he's like, hey, man, we got to go back. I don't know. But I will tell you, there's a time frame that somebody from this island, people from this island came to know Christ at Pentecost. That's a cool picture to me. And to me, that's, that's, let me just say this. People that function as apostles, look, I believe they're true today. I believe God uses them today. Apostles, pastors, prophets, evangelists, and teachers. I believe you always are on the lookout. You're always looking, how can I advance the kingdom of God? I guarantee you, Paul knew that these people knew the Lord at Pentecost. That's just how people think. That's just, that's how there's an awareness of where is God moving? In fact, Pastor Gordy, Tom just showed us a map. He had a, a map printed out of, of Indiana uh, since 2015 about where the, the flames of revival has, have sparked in certain towns. Well, that's because Gordy's an apostle and he, he tracks where these things are going. That's what the apostle Paul does. Oh yeah, people from Crete, they came to know the Lord. How can we teach, how can we speak into them? How can we teach them? That's how he thinks. So now here's the crazy thing is that he has been commissioned. Okay. He has been commissioned to to speak into now Crete is probably the size, a third of the size of New Hampshire. We're talking dinky. Okay. Dinky little Crete. Okay. Homer, you guys, not, um, not, not Homer Simpson, Homer from the ninth century. He said, Crete is known of Crete of the hundred cities. Okay. Why do I bring that up? Okay. Can you go back, Kevin, at the very beginning here? I want to begin to unfold some of this stuff here. Just remember that there's a hundred, Homer references hundreds of cities in Crete, okay? A size of a third of New Hampshire, okay? Just let's come back to this in a little bit here. Paul, a slave of God, an apostle of Christ Jesus, Jesus Christ, to build up the faith of God's elect in the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness in the hope of eternal life that God who cannot lie, praise the Lord, by the way, Promise before time began. I did a study actually on lying um, because of because of this lesson. One of the first recorded disciplinary actions that God took on the church. You want to know what it was for? Lying. Uh, Acts five. Ananias and Sapphira. All I want to say is God doesn't lie. <laughs> God cannot lie, and He promised before time began. In His own time, He has revealed. Now you have to understand something. His message. This is God's message. The emphasis isn't on the messenger, like Paul or Titus. The emphasis is on actually the message of God. His message in the proclamation that I was entrusted with by the command of God, our Savior. Now, this, this theme, Savior, okay? You're going to see this consistently throughout the book. You're going to see God referenced as Savior, which I think, Kevin, it, as, a, as a New Testament believer, we typically don't label God as our Savior. Would you guys agree? Does that make sense? Like you label Jesus as our savior. But as a New Testament believer, I, I can honestly say it's not like I'm praying, God, you're my savior. I don't know, Tom, do you think, I don't, maybe you think like that. At times, but it's not the norm. It's not the norm. So we use the word savior for Titus and you're like, man, that's a big one. <laughs> this is a big word. Uh, out of all 66 books, you chose savior for Titus? Like, can't even find Titus sometimes. It sticks to the Timothys and the Hebrews. 
And then you're like, you know, <laughs> here's what I love about this is, is that, yes, uh, Jesus is portrayed, God is portrayed as our Savior multiple times. In fact, if you go to Titus 2, verse 13, Titus 2, 13, along with what we just read in Titus 1, it says, while we wait for the blessed hope, and appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior. And look, there it is again, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so you have this theme of Jesus Christ coming in and saving, God coming in and saving. And oh, by the way, we can have hope in this. We can have hope in the fact that He is and will save us. One more reference, Titus 3, 4, 5, and 6, and really on even to 7. It says, but when the goodness and love for man appeared from God, here it is again, from God our Savior. He saved us. How did he save us? Not by works of righteousness that we had done. Can, can I just make that really simple? It actually is. You're not saved by going to church. You're not saved by reading the Bible. You're not saved by making a pie for your neighbor. Those are good. Uh, you can email me for my address later. Uh, like you're not saved by like pulling over and helping a good and being a good Samaritan. Like. I'm not negating those things. I'm not negating the fact that you can make blankets and give people those things. I just think in certain communities and in culture and in man, we think that's what earns us favor to God. Scripture says, no, no, no. God doesn't save us because of our works of righteousness that we've done. But he says, I've saved you according to his mercy, God's mercy. And this is what I love about Minnie's painting, through the washing of regeneration. Like there's just this... Ah, there's just this cleansing and there's this renewal by the Holy Spirit. And then it goes to verse six. And look what it says. It says he poured out like this water is, is it's like that living water mentality almost. And he pours out this water on us abundantly like it just keeps coming. And what does that look like? It's through Jesus Christ, our Savior. And then in verse seven, it puts on everything together so that having been justified, there it is again. It's like a reiteration of verse five. You've been justified by his grace, not because of you're a good person, not because you go to church or because you go to mass or not because you have certain things around your neck or you, you put things on your dashboard. Like all of these things we think are good. They're reminders, you guys, but they don't save us. They do not save us. We have been justified by God's grace. We may become heirs with the hope of eternal life. You know what means heirs? It means that we get to inherit like what he did for us. Remember in first Timothy, remember how he was our, our ransom? Remember that? How he becomes our mediator? He did all of that, you guys, so that we could be saved. That's why he is our savior. Now, look, I would be crazy not to even say this. We are saved, you guys, because everybody sins, which leads to death. We're saved, which leads to death. Because of our sin, it leads to death. And I love this. His love through what Christ did on the cross takes away the sin and the death. Folks, that's how we can be saved. When we have faith in him, we get life. Please don't, please don't miss that Titus has a huge theme of Savior. God and Jesus being our Savior. And so he writes to, to Titus and he says, hey, look, man, uh, grace and peace from God, the Father in Christ Jesus. And then and then what he does for the rest of this uh, of this chapter is and apparently we're not even going to get there today. But he gives more qualifications, you guys, of elders, more qualifications. He says, look, in verse five, look, the reason I left you on the island, hey, get a suntan. No, that was a good one. Tony Hicks. The reason I left you in Crete was to set right what was left undone. In other words, there, there's something here that there's an unfinished uh, organization of, of the churches. Okay? So he says, I need you to establish 
elders with these churches because we didn't apparently put something in place yet. Remember, these are man's qualifications that God has given us to implement into the churches. So I need you to appoint elders in every town. So what does that mean? It means that there's churches in every town. Like God has planted churches through Timothy, through Paul. And now I need you to go establish elders in every one of these communities. And then he begins to describe what these qualifications are. First Timothy Depends who counts and depends how you count. But in 1 Timothy 3, there's probably at least 15 qualifications for an elder. Okay, there's a lot of qualifications. What's crazy is, if the way, again, the way you look at it in uh, Titus 1, uh, 5 through 9, there, there could be up to 17 qualifications. There could be a difference between anywhere from 8 to 10 uh, different ones. Uh, probably 9, I would say, of different ones of qualifications. Let me just list, just, I'm not going to teach on them, but I need you to have faithful children. Not only can you manage your household, but I need you to have faithful children that aren't loose, uh, crazy ones. I need you to be a good steward, a steward of what God has given them. Like this is a qualification of an, of an elder. I need you to not be arrogant. I'm reading the ones, just so you guys know, that are different than 1 Timothy 3. Okay. I need you to not be, uh, in verse 7a, Kevin. Yeah. Um, I need you to not be arrogant. Okay, I need you to not be uh, hot tempered. I need you to, it says um, a couple other ones. Keep going, Kevin, if you want to go to the next one. I need you in verse eight. I need you to be loving what is good. I love this one, by the way. Okay, the reason I think this is a great qualification of elders. What if you go into a guy, you go into his house, you talk to him. And then he has like, he has like all rated R movies. Okay, look, I get there's certain movies that are okay that are rated R, but what if they're like all rated R movies? And then if you sat and showed your kids that you're like, you'd be appalled. But he's like, man, I love this series. I love this series. I have all 18 of them. Like, I'm serious. Like, do you love things that are good or do you love things that are of the world? Like, even your little, um, uh, how would you describe this? The, the, your little hobbies, they should reflect who you are in Christ. All of these things, if you go into a garage, I hope that you have pictures on the wall that are of God, not of things that aren't. Tom. It's striking to me the transformation. What he's describing for these leaders versus what they're all like on this island. I mean, the transformation from liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. I'd never put that together. Here's Here's the illustration of the transformation. Look, if your life has really been changed, I need to see it in order that you can steward the truth. Because if you can't handle um, stewarding the truth, you're going to fall into what, how the Cretans are. And so there you have it. He, he describes a couple other characteristics. Uh, they need to be just, they need to be holy, self-controlled, holding to a faithful message. Different qualifications that he lists that are a little bit different than First Timothy, but they're both valid. And he says, look, man, if you want to maintain what's already been entrusted, please gather support together put them in place, put them in structure, in the role of elders. We don't see you guys just as what you would expect, a list of deacons. Just only elders in this context. Right now, for our text that we're talking about. And so then he gets, uh, verses 10 through 16, after describing the elders, he then begins to describe uh, the false teachers. He begins to descri- uh, describe who they are. So I'm telling you, there's a counter, you guys. We have to be on the offensive because I promise you, the enemy wants to bring this thing down. And in fact, in verse 16, how would you ultimately describe a person that's not walking with the Lord, a false teacher? They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. 
And then what you see is, is words that almost describe the Cretans to a T. They're detestable, they're disobedient, and disqualified for any work. It sounds like liars, evil beasts, and what was the other one? Lazy gluttons. Lazy gluttons. What a challenge. Paul says to Titus, you carry the torch. I've equipped you, and I'm asking you that you continue to stay strong in the faith. And, and here's the best part. Depend upon Jesus as you're doing it. He is the one that has saved you and can save many others on this island. All right, guys, you have your first lesson, Titus 1. Look forward to talking with you guys tomorrow on Lesson 85. Thanks.